Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. This evening, I'm going to start a new series. In 2009, I actually did a series that I entitled um, The Century of the Spirit. And it was a departure from what we would normally do here at Gateway. Normally, we, ter- uh, we talk directly from the scriptures. But in that series, I spoke about the history of revival seasons that ha- had come during the 20th century. Times when God moved suddenly upon communities and groups of people. Now, I know that the sound of the word history is enough to send some of you uh, searching for your phones to go on TikTok or or, um, Facebook. Um, Perhaps you're so overwhelmed by your challenging present present that uh, history holds no interest for you whatsoever. For others of you, the mention of history is a traumatic, uh, revives traumatic memories of secondary school that you'd rather not revisit. And then for others, uh, we are afflicted with what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. And he defined chronological snobbery as the universal acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date, that is history, is on that count discredited. Very silly approach to life, I might say. Os Guinness says, a distinct feature of the modern world is its passion for the uh, present, its fascination with the future at the expense of the past. So one might well ask, who cares about the past? The answer is people who care about the future. Prophetic vision involves three aspects. There is foresight to the prophetic, which of course has to do with the future. There's insight, which has to do with what's happening round about you. And thirdly, there's hindsight, which has to do with understanding of the past. And I'm sure most of you have heard that very famous quote, if we don't learn from history, we're bound to repeat it. Winston Churchill famously observed that the further back you can look, the further forward you can see. So as we look at revival seasons, there is much that we can, we can learn. And one of my hopes and prayers for that season that we studied it was that it would create an expectation in our hearts for a fresh move of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our time. And that prayer is expressed by the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 3, verse 2, when he says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known, in wrath, remember mercy. It's also the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 85, verse 6, when he says, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? It's a prayer for revival. And if you break down that prayer, it goes like this. Will you is the God of revival, not revive us? That's the need for revival. Again, is the history of revival, that your people, that's the subject of revival, may rejoice, that's the effect of revival in you, and that's the end and purpose of revival. So in that series, I covered off some of the 20th century's revival season. I looked first of all at the Welsh revival of uh, 1904 and focused on its, um, its catalyst, a young man by the name of Evan Roberts. I looked at the revival centered in Azusa Street in Los Angeles in, 2000, in 1906 to th- through to 1908, and we focused on the black um, Afro-American preacher William Seymour. 
In the third message, I looked at some of the early Pentecostal pioneers, men by the name of Alexander Dowie, John G. Lake, and in particular, I focused on a woman, Amy Semple McPherson, who was the founder of the Four Square denomination. We don't have uh, any, I, don't, I think, Four Square churches in New Zealand, but throughout the world, Four Square is a significant dom- denomination. And Amy Semple McPherson was a remarkable woman. She was really the pastor of America's first mega church the 5,000-seat Angelus Temple. It had a congregation of over 10,000 people, and in the first seven years that it was opened, they say 40 million people passed through its doorways. Uh, Chris and I had the amazing experience when we were in LA a few years ago together. We went to uh, Angelus Temple, and it was a remarkable building. One of the things that I recall most vividly is standing on the stage and speaking, and the uh, um, acoustics were amazing. You could speak... And, and be heard without any magnification throughout that whole, that whole building. It was, it was a remarkable building. Movie stars like Charlie Chaplin, Gloria Swanson, and Anthony Quinn were part of Amy Semple McPherson's uh, congregation. And it was said that Hollywood movie directors would come to hear her speak and to watch her creative uh, plays and dramas and try and get ideas for their own movies. Anthony Quinn once commented, I saw all the great actresses at work, Ingrid Bergman, Catherine Hepburn, Greta Garbo, and they all fell short of the first electric shock that Amy Semple McPherson produced in me. She, She was a remarkable woman. We also looked at the healing evangelists of the 1940s and 50s, men like Oral Roberts, T.L. Osborne, A.A. Allen, Jack Coe, and preeminent among them, and the one that we focused on in that service was um, William Branham. I suppose every era has its good, bad, and straight-out ugly, but the character flaws of some of these men during the 40s and 50s was really hard to look past. There was competition, envy, and downright lies. Um, That phrase, evangelistically speaking, you know, they stretched the truth so that they could have bigger meetings, bigger crowds, more miracles than the ones that they saw as their competitors. So in some ways it was pretty sad, and yet at the same time, in spite of those manifest flaws, God moved in stunning ways. And then I looked at the revival that has swept the the world that we call the global south. A revival, by the way, that still continues. A revival that swept nations like Argentina, Brazil, China, Korea, among others. And those revivals, or that revival that still continues, has changed the face of global Christianity. John Beatty, uh, a Kenyan scholar, says the centers of the church's universality are no longer Geneva, Rome, Athens, Paris, London, and New York, but are Kinshasa, Buenos Aires, Addis Ababa, and Manila. The center of gravity for Christian working has moved into that global south. And if it continues, by the year 2050, only about 20% of the world's 3 billion Christians will be white. And soon the phrase, a white Christian, may sound like a curious oxymoron, as mildly surprising as a sweetest Buddhist. By the way, during this series, I'm going to mention quite a number of books, and uh, we'll, put, we'll put them up at the end in a slide that if you want to take a picture of and explore a little more, it might be well worth your while. If you want to explore what's going on in the global south, Philip Jenkins' books, The New Face of Christianity and The New Christendom, are really good reads. I don't know whether you know this, but presently Iran is experiencing pretty much uh, what is understood to be the fastest church growth in any nation at present. 
this Islamic nation where the church has grown by over 200% in the last seven years and is currently growing at 28% per year. And again, a book worth reading is Mark Bradley's book, Too Many to Jail. It's an encouraging read. In that message, I noted that the revival that is sweeping the global south um, has some particular characteristics. Number one, it's biblically conservative. Uh, the Anglican Church, for example, has found itself on the horns of a dilemma with this feature because in the West, the Anglican Church, by and large, not always and not everywhere, but in, but in many places is quite liberal. The Anglicans of the global south are not liberal, they're biblically conservative. And since the Nigerian Anglicans now constitute the largest number of Anglicans worldwide, they are hard to ignore and hard to sideline. Second feature of this revival that's sweeping the global south is that it has very strong supernatural orientation. And Philip Jenkins notes, if there is a single key area of faith and practice that divides northern and southern Christians, it is a matter of spiritual forces and their effects in the everyday world. The third feature is that women play a central role, and the last one is that persecution is a very real and present danger. I say all that because I want to build on that series that I did. And for the next three weeks, God willing, I'd like to pick up the theme of revival seasons and look at movements that are much more recent in time. Some of you here, although I'm looking around thinking perhaps not many, but some of you will remember them and some of you uh, may, like, like Karen and I, have participated at some level in them. I'm looking around and thinking many of you will have been too young to have lived through them. Perhaps others are old enough, but perhaps either you weren't believers at the time or were in churches that wouldn't have accepted what was happening as something God was doing anyway. So I'm hoping that it'll be interest. As I say, it's not meant to be just a history and a, a nostalgic trip down memory lane like some old geezers showing family photographs to people who are completely disinterested in them. I'm really trying to posture our hearts toward the Lord with an expectation that he would renew his works in our day and in our time. When you try and trace God's supernatural hand, even with the benefit of hindsight, it's really difficult to do. And it's a bit like looking at the Rakaia Riverbed, you know, the Rakaia River in the South Island. Which stream do you follow? Uh, if you follow one, you miss out on all the others. And with that apology and acknowledgement of limitation, I've chosen to follow one little rivulet. And I want to examine what we now look back on and call the Jesus movement of the 1960s and 1970s. When you talk about the 1960s, a phrase that comes readily to mind is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And somebody amusingly quipped, if you can remember the 1960s, you clearly weren't there. Now, it was all of those things. Uh, it was the time of flower power, of hippies with their beads, their long hair, their beads, and their combi vans. It was the time of Haight-Ashbury District in San Francisco and the 1967 Summer of Love. Uh, if you're interested, you could YouTube that lovely song by Scott McKenzie, Are You Going to San Francisco? Be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. It was referring to that season and that time. It was the time when the counterculture reached uh, a peak, probably uh, culminating at Woodstock, the festival in August 1969, where over a half, a half a million young people gathered at Max Yazgut's farm in Bethel in New York for three days of music, peace, and love. And they were, as Joni Mitchell said in her lyrics in the song entitled Woodstock, trying to get themselves back to the garden. There was such a mix of disillusionment in that 
generation and yet a spiritual hunger. They had rejected their parents' secular materialism and conformity. They were sickened by the Vietnam War, by Watergate and by the struggle over civil rights and they were looking for transcendence. They sought it, however, in acid trips, in rock music, in Eastern religion, in the occult and in native spiritualities of all kinds. What happened in San Francisco literally spread out over the whole world and young people all over the world followed California's lead and turned on to sex, drug and rock and roll. Turn on and tune out was the mantra of the drug guru Timothy Leary and many people in my generation took that on board. However, it was a movement that peaked and then tanked. The Altamont Rock Festival in December 1969 that followed Woodstock was anything but peace, love and music. The Hells Angels, who had been hired as security guards, created absolute chaos. They were drunk, the crowd was high, a disorderly crowd of 300,000 people and it ended in the murder of one of the concert goers by uh, one of the Hells Angels security guards. And suddenly we, we stalled in our Aquarian optimism, our hopes and dreams for peace and love throughout our world crashed with incredible damage and disappointment. It ended in poverty, crime, predatory personal behaviour, sexually transmitted diseases and drug overdoses, highlighted by the now famous 27 Club. And if you haven't heard of the 27 Club, it was made up of artists who died at the age of 27, nearly all of them from alcohol and drug-related overdoses. Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Alan Wilson of Canned Heat, Janis Joplin, Jim, Jimmy Morrison of The Doors, Peter Ham from Bad Finger, and more recently Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse have added their name to the 27 Club. The great spiritual longing of that time seemed absolutely exhausted and broken. As I say, the Aquarian age of optimism had completely stalled. However, God had other ideas. And up out of the brokenness of the hippie movement, Phoenix-like, rose another movement, again beginning in the Californian region. And it's what we now look back on and call the Jesus movement. And the people that were involved, we call Jesus freaks. Like all of God's movements, where, when, and with whom it started is probably only known to heaven. But names like converted druggies Led and T uh, Ted and Liz Wise and a Baptist pastor by the name of John MacDonald are touted as possible starting points. Young people started coming to Christ, first as a trickle, then as a stream, and finally as an absolute flood. And it spread across the world, touching people like me, uh, little old would-be hippie in, in Palmerston North. I was profoundly, deeply touched by what was happening in, uh, in, in this movement. If you're interested in tracing it, God's Forever Family by Larry Eskridge is a fine history of the Jesus movement. Tens of thousands of people started coming to Christ. It was noted by observers at the time, they said, the movement, for lack of a better word, is raging across the nation like a wind-driven bushfire, jumping any obstacle to break out almost by spontaneous combustion. In dozens of places, in dozens of forms, this revival spirit, unprogrammed with no mission board strategies, no superstars at the head. And people were on the street sharing their testimony with anybody who would listen. They established coffee houses where worn out hippies came 
in their droves to find that other hippies were now Jesus freaks. And among them were coffee houses like the Living Room in the Haight-Ashbury area, the Soul Inn, the Upper Room, the Belly of the Whale, Arthur Blessett's His Place on Sunset Boulevard, and Hollywood Presbyterian Don Williams's The Salt Company. They were famous coffee houses whose names literally spread around the world. There were Jesus marches where people had their placards and, and in their thousands marched to show their faith and solidarity with Christ. We had our versions of that here in New Zealand. Christian communes multiplied like loaves and fishes. Underground Jesus papers came into circulation. The Hollywood Free Paper and the Cornerstone were probably among the most famous. There were baptisms in the ocean. Calvary Chapel baptised at least 8,000 people in large public events. Music was a crucial part in, of that ongoing element. And it could be argued that the Jesus movement actually was the birth of the contemporary Christian music industry and our present day worship music. Bands like Love Song, Maranatha Music, Second Chapter of Acts, and individual artists like Chuck Gerard, Larry Norman, Keith Green, and Barry Maguire became very well-known people. Actually, the influence of the Jesus movement music flowed over into mainstream music. And some of you who are around my age may remember songs like Jesus is a Soul Man by Lawrence Reynolds. Norman Greenbaum's song, Spirit in the Sky, reached number three in the Billboard Top 40. The 1970 musical, Jesus Christ Superstar, sent songs like I Don't Know How to Love Him by Helen Reddy uh, onto the charts. Um, a band called Ocean sang a song, Put Your Hand in the Hand, and of course the Doobie Brothers sang Jesus is Just Alright by Me. So even the secular scene was being influenced by the Jesus movement. Some of the books at that time became uh, required reading whether you were Christian or not. Um, Crossing the Switchblade by David Wilkerson sold 15 million copies. Hal Lindsay's 1970 book, The Late Great Planet Earth, had sold 28 million copies by 1990. You know, when I got saved, I had the Bible in one hand and Late Great Planet Earth in the other, and it wasn't unusual. Looking historically at this time, it's really difficult to pick out one individual because it was just so wide. As I said, it's a bit like the Rakaia Riverbed. But there is one young man who had a special touch on his life and was incredibly used by God. And I want to just follow that little rivulet. He was a man by the name of Lonnie Frisbee. Um, Lonnie, if you, if you Google the Jesus movement, Lonnie Frisbee's name will invariably come up as a key player. He was a Samson-like figure, unbelievably gifted and yet significantly flawed. Lonnie was born in Costa Mesa, California in 1949. His father was a violent alcoholic who, before he went off with another woman, literally tormented Lonnie and his siblings. Thereafter, he was raised for a season in a sing single-parent home. When his mother remarried, uh, his stepfather also totally rejected Lonnie. He was tragically, repeatedly sexually violated by a, male, uh, by a male babysitter. When Lonnie told his parents, they concluded that he was making it all up and continued to use the babysitter with predictable results for Lonnie. It, as first sexual experiences so often do, imprinted and impacted him profoundly, and he said it broke up the foundations of his life and sent him down a same-sex attraction pathway. By 15 years of age, he was involved in the Laguna Beach gay and drug scene. Like so many of his generation, he made his way up to San Francisco for the Summer of Love in 1967. He regularly tripped on LSD, all the while seeking an experience of spiritual transcendence. He had a real heart 
toward God. Actually, his grandmother had led him to the Lord as an eight-year-old, but he'd gone so far away from it. He was into the occult. He was into UFOs and any other strange thing that came down the pipe. Regularly, he would go out into the Californian desert, tripping on LSD, reading the Bible, roaming naked and crying out to God to reveal himself. And one day, while he was wandering in the Tarkees Canyon, God did reveal himself. Lonnie said the whole area was suddenly crackling with divine energy, and he saw a vision of thousands and thousands of young people in the Valley of Decision, and he was preaching to them. He understood this to be God's call on his life, and although his theology at this point in time was anything but orthodox, and probably many would have even questioned what he could have uh, even been converted since he was in the middle of an LSD trip, nevertheless, he considered that to be his conversion experience, and he totally, totally changed. He went back to the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco, joined the Living Room Mission, and uh, got himself at least a little straightened out as far as his theology went. He spent a number of years in a Christian commune, and when he had emerged, he had really developed his faith. After that season, he moved back to Southern California, where he spent all of his time sharing his faith with with whoever would listen. He used to hitchhike, not to go anywhere, but just simply to be picked up, and once he'd been picked up, he'd immediately start witnessing to, to his driver. When his driver dropped him off, he would hitchhike and go wherever the next driver took him so that he could witness to him. On one occasion, he was picked up by a clean-cut young man called John. Johnny, John picked Lonnie up as he was hitchhiking. John was an ex-hippie who had come to Christ, got cleaned up, and used to, pitch up, uh, used to pick up hitchhikers so that he could witness to them and have a captive audience. And apparently he started witness, witnessing to Lonnie and Lonnie told him he was a Christian. John wasn't convinced because Lonnie was still looking much, much more like a hippie than a Christian. Lonnie convinced him that he was a Christian, born again. Now once John found out that he had a real live hippie in his car who was a born again believer, he said, I have got to introduce you to some people that I know. John was dating a pastor's daughter, and that, that pastor and his wife had developed a real burden to reach out to the hippie community. Actually, it was his wife who developed the, the burden. The pastor, by his own admission, said he wasn't too keen. He just thought the hippies needed a bath and needed to get a good job. But Kay Smith, the wife, convinced her recalcitrant husband to come with her just to watch the hippies as they gathered on the beach and were high on drugs, and she used to just weep over them. And gradually it touched her husband, Chuck's heart as well. Chuck Smith was um, pastoring a small, um, a small church in that area. And having his heart touched, he decided we should try and meet a real life hippie. And the next thing you know, John is knocking at the Smith's door with Lonnie in tow. There is an immediate connection between Lonnie and Chuck Smith. And Chuck was profoundly impressed by Lonnie's love for Jesus and his love for people. He convinced Lonnie and his wife to move in to the area and for a season they lived with the Smiths. He was quickly put in charge of a rehab house that they called the House of Miracles. And uh, in the first week, Lonnie had led 35 of the people in that house to the Lord. They started a Bible study, uh, which Lonnie preached at, and it soon began, being, uh, soon began to be attended not just by tens, not just by hundreds, but by thousands of people crowding out every place that they rented. And over the next six months, 20,000 people at least came to Christ in, uh, in that Calvary Chapel. 
Uh, over 8,000 were baptised in the ocean, and that movement literally spread across the US and around the world, a sweeping mo movement that could really only have been orchestrated by God. Such a significant move that it caught the attention of the secular press, Life magazine, Newsweek, the Rolling Stone magazine, and even the Wall Street Journal covered the events that were transpiring. In 1971, Time magazine produced its very now very famous cover. During, during this season, Lonnie Frisbee would go up to um, LA once a month and attend Catherine Kuhlman miracle meetings. They were held in the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles once a month. And here's where these various kind of rivulets uh, cross, interact, and, and, and flow into one another, then flow on. I don't know whether you've read anything or know anything about Catherine Kuhlman. If you haven't, I suggest Jamie Duck, uh, Buckingham's book, Daughter of Destiny, is, a, is an incredible read. She was a remarkable woman who, in many ways was like Frisbee, a Samson-like character, phenomenally gifted and truly a gift of miracles would transpire when she would preach. Um, she didn't pray for people, lay her hands on people. She would just preach. She was incredibly dramatic, had this really unusual accent. If you're interested, you can go on YouTube and, and, uh, and listen to Catherine Coleman. And uh, for us Kiwis, it's like, oh, flip, I don't think I could cope with that. But truly miraculous. Spirit would come and she'd just start calling out the miracles that were happening and genuinely um, medically um, um, validated miracles through her ministry. Um, interestingly, she had been inspired and impacted by Amy Semple McPherson. Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel had been a four-square pastor. He'd gone to Life Bible College, which was the college started by Amy Semple McPherson. And again, you see these rivulets all interacting and flowing on. Lonnie got to meet Catherine Coleman, and actually he was part of one of her TV specials. And we just caught this very short video clip. That's Catherine Coleman to his right. Catherine Coleman laid hands on Lonnie, and this encounter seemed to absolutely increase his, the already dramatic touch of the Holy Spirit that was on his life. By 1971, Lonnie and Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel parted, the way, parted ways. Lonnie was becoming more and more aggressively and overtly Pentecostal. There were, and Lonnie encouraged in his meetings, really significant spiritual manifestations, falling, shaking, crying, laughing, deliverance, miracles, and healings. And this made the more conservative Calvary Chapel leaders uncomfortable. Their intense focus was the in-depth exposition of the scriptures, and they felt that all of these um, manifestations were an unwelcome distraction. So they parted company. For a season, Lonnie and his wife moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, to submit themselves to a group of people that became known as the Fort Lauderdale Five. Bob Mumford, Derek Prince, Charles Simpson, Ern Baxter, and Don Basham. Now, they started a movement called the Discipleship Movement, and um, for those of you who know my testimony, that Discipleship Movement, by the time it had got to New Zealand, uh, had a dramatic impact on Karen and I, and I don't mean good dramatic, I mean destructive 
dramatic. Um, they, they taught the need to be submitted to leaders, but by the time that had reached where we were, uh, it became um, uh, anything but a blessing. It was legalistic, it was heavy-handed, it was dictatorial, it was destructive. I'm sure the intentions of these men were good, but the emphasis, as I say, as it spread out, was anything but. And the Frisbees were badly bruised by that experience, and their marriage didn't survive, and they ultimately divorced in 1973. Lonnie returned to California, where he started attending a church, a Calvary Chapel church, pastored by a man by the name of John Wimber in, uh, in Yorba Linda. Now, Lonnie had been attending the church for a while, and John said he felt to ask him to share one Sunday evening. Now, he was rather wary about asking him, but he felt the Lord really prompt him to do it. He said he'd heard of Lonnie's reputation, and he was concerned. And actually, there's a YouTube clip, if you're interested, where Wimber describes what happened. It's very funny. John Wimber is a very funny guy, and it really is worth a watch. He said, uh, he invited him to speak. He said, we took the worship a little longer than it would normally be. He said, I thought of a few extra announcements to make that a bit longer than it would normally be so that Lonnie's time to share would actually be quite short and perhaps he wouldn't do any damage. But that service became known as the famous Mother's Day service of 1980. All was going really well. Frisbee shared his testimony. It was funny. He connected with the audience, and John Wimber said his initial fears were allayed, and he began to relax and really enjoy Lonnie. Lonnie finished up the service, however, by saying, you know what? The Holy Spirit has been grieved, but he's over it, and he's going to come. Come, Holy Spirit. Carol Wimber, John's wife, described what happened next. He said you couldn't he she said you couldn't hear anything but the roar of the crowd as hundreds were filled with the Holy Spirit at the same time, were shouting loud in tongues, the chairs were falling over and the people were falling on top of the chairs. The leaders that could still function were shouting at one another and it was complete pandemonium. Others were shouting that they were getting out of here. One young man fell face down, pulling the microphone down under him. And if we'd ever entertained the thought of keeping any kind of reputation of respectability, it went up to the ceiling of the gymnasium along with the young man's voice as he shouted uncontrollably in tongues with the volume turned all the way up because somebody had crashed into the sound desk. You, you really want to um, hear Wimber tell a story. Once the controversy that that service caused had been resolved, and it created quite a bit, as you can imagine, Wimber became convinced that what had transpired was actually an act of God. And Lonnie was quickly invited to be part of Wimber's staff and team. And they traveled the world together doing their signs and wonders conferences. Some of you may have had the incredible privilege of attending them. We did in 1987 in, in Auckland, and I will never forget the dramatic uh, impact of the Holy Spirit coming among us as thousands of people stood and John Wimber simply said, come Holy Spirit, and he did. Wherever Wimber and Frisbee went, dramatic supernatural manifestations followed and it became part of the characteristic of the vineyard at least for that season. Those supernatural manifestations became a real tension point between Chuck Smith and John Wimber. Both of them were Calvary Chapel churches. It ended in John Wimber moving away and becoming part of the very then small vineyard movement. He was quickly acknowledged to be its leader, and uh, since then the vineyard movement has spread all over the world, and Frisbee followed Wimber. Most historians would say Frisbee was the charismatic spark 
that first ignited Calvary Chapel and then the Vineyard Movement, blasting both of them into the stratosphere of worldwide attention. And some of you are probably thinking, well, I've heard of John Wimber and I've heard of Chuck Smith, but I've never heard of Lonnie Frisbee. How, how is that so? These movements were sparked by him. Why haven't I heard of his name? Well, probably the reason is, is the dark and broken side of Lonnie's life, which was never really dealt with or healed, um, came to the fore, came to the surface. Now, there are conflicting reports as to what happened, but I think this story probably sounds uh, the most likely from what I've um, uh, ascertained through my study. A young man came to his pastor guilt-ridden over an ongoing sexual relationship that he'd been having with Lonnie. It appears that some of Lonnie's same-sex exploits were an open secret among some of his followers. Nobody said anything because of the spiritual impact in his public persona, and they felt that they probably wouldn't be believed, or they thought, what happens if I destroy the work of a man of God? When Wimber was made aware of Lonnie's behavior, he was immediately removed from public ministry, and Lonnie took that as just more rejection, and he spiraled down into a season of further darkness. Some commentators are critical of uh, the way that Lonnie Frisbee was apparently used by Chuck Smith and John Wimber to launch their movement, and then they say rejected and discarded. Now, I obviously don't know how well that situation was handled, but my, symptom, my sympathies, to be truthful, are with uh, Chuck Smith and John Wimber, both very godly men. And I know from my own experience, it's hugely challenging to deal with people who are charismatically gifted and yet have major character flaws. I know something of that dynamic personally, having had a part in exposing some very prominent and gifted ministers' sins. When you're in that situation, you are literally on a hiding to nothing, and you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. Now, Lonnie did emerge from his dark season. He was restored to public ministry for a season. However, shortly after that, his past caught up with him, and he contracted AIDS, and he died from complications associated with that condition in 1993. He was 43 years of age. I and personally indebted and so grateful for the Jesus movement. It reached down to little old New Zealand and touched my life in such a profound way. Uh, a would-be hippie. I remember sitting in Palmerston North Teachers College car park waiting for my then fiance, reading about what was happening in Chuck Smith's Calvary Chapel in a little book called The Reproducers and longing that that might happen in my life and among my friends. And very shortly after that it did. You know, there are so many lessons we can learn from this amazing season and so many lessons that we can learn from Lonnie Frisbee's life specifically. It would take a whole other sermon, perhaps a series of sermons. But in closing, let me briefly draw your attention to a couple of things that I think we can learn from Lonnie's life. Number one is that God seems to respond to deep hunger. Lonnie and that generation had a deep longing for transcendence. Now, they tried to fulfill it in illicit ways, but the hunger was there. And Psalm 42 says, deep cries out to deep. You know what? A shallow cry, you know, when there's just a shallow cry, God can only fill it that much. But when there's a deep, deep heart cry, there's much to fill. Second thing is that the grace of God rests on lives that perhaps we wouldn't choose and maybe even might offend us. Lonnie could be brash and arrogant. I had a friend, actually, a South African pastor. When Lonnie first went to South Africa with John Wimber, Lonnie went up to my friend, his name was David, and said, you a pastor? And David said, yes. He said, I hate pastors. 
and then walked off and put out his hand and my friend was flat on his back under the power of the Holy Ghost. I, I don't know, I haven't got theology for that stuff. But it regularly happened in his ministry. He could be brash and arrogant. One of the things I'd say is don't count people out because they don't fit your profile of a person that God might use. You know what, I'm not sure how many of us would respond well to John the Baptist if he turned up among us these days. That, however, has to be balanced by, by their fruit, you shall know them. Charismatic giftedness ultimately is not sufficient. Don't be overawed by power displays, thinking as we so often did, because there's power, God's blessing must be upon the person through whom the power is coming. You read Daughter of Destiny. Catherine Corman was unbelievably insecure. I mean, pathetically insecure needing to know that her crowds were bigger than other people's crowds, that her miracles were more numerous than other people's new miracles. And you think, I, I mean, I read that and I think, oh, that's pathetic. And yet God moved dramatically and mightily through that woman. It's not always God just simply because it's God's power. You know, sometimes you have to look and say, yep, God's power is flowing through really broken and flawed individuals. Are there any other kind? Next, deal with your personal brokenness. Be vulnerable and transparent to at least some people. If you don't, it'll come back to bite you, as it did in Lonnie's experience. His sexual brokenness was left untouched and undealt with, and under pressure it came out and destroyed him. His deep personal rejection postured him to resist authority. He'd had abusive father and abusive stepfather. When his spiritual fathers, Chuck Smith and John Wimber, stepped in trying to shape Lonnie, he resisted it and withdrew at the first sign of their disapproval. Deal with your stuff. Don't excuse it. Don't rationalize it. Don't blame shift. Deal with your stuff. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.